Thanks, Ezra. Good morning. Well, lots of announcements this morning. Hey, lots and lots and lots. Hey, good things, very good things. Probably you need a little bit of a stretch. So if you need to just put your hands up and do a bit of a hip, 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 hippopotamus, that's okay. Very good ministry, by the way, mainly music. I heartily recommend you and prayerfully recommend you to consider serving there. And how about we pray now? Oh, Lord God, thank you for your word. You reveal yourself to us clearly with everything we need to know about you here and now. And so, Lord, now as we open this book of Genesis, we consider that you have spoken, just as you've spoken all creation into existence. Let there be light. Lord, you speak to us now. Pray that you would... Wake up dead hearts and minds that are are not regenerated to the saving grace of Jesus. And Lord, for those of us who are saved, we pray that you would mature us this morning and and grow us to see you and delight in you and trust you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's been about a year since Sky and I bought our first home together, which is very exciting. It's gone very quickly. Um, And uh, we're kind of at the stage now where we pass by those little signs by the side of the road that say like open for inspection or open house and we just go, ha ha, not us. We don't need to do that. Uh, It was very stressful. Uh, If you've ever gone about even even renting a house, you know, uh, whether it's renting or buying, it's a very stressful ordeal because you, you look at these houses and they might look great on the outside, but they hide some deep, dark secret. You know, there might be termites in there. You need to get a pest report done to find that out. There might be white ants. Uh, There might be some water damage that you can't see until you get the investigation done. Or worst of all, there might be a bad foundation. And you know what happens to houses that have bad foundations, right? This is what happens to houses that have bad foundations. (laughs) Everything gets wrecked. If you have a bad foundation, everything's going to fall down at some point. And so it's worth us asking ourselves as Christians, as followers of Jesus, uh, what is the foundation of our faith? What is the foundation of of all that we believe about Christ and all we hold true about God? Because if we have a poor foundation, this is what will happen to our spiritual lives. And not only that, all of our lives, because we will one day appear before the true and living God and have to give an account for the way that we live. And, And if our faith in Jesus is misplaced... That will not be a good day. (laughs) We will be like this house. What is the foundation of our faith? Well, of course, the foundation of our faith is the gospel. It's the truth that Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth, lived a sinless life, died on a cross and rose again for the forgiveness of our sins. So that if we trust in him, Jesus has paid the judgment for our sins. We are cleared before the Father. We have a relationship with him. Hallelujah. That is the foundation of our faith. But on what foundation does that rest? Have you ever thought about that? It doesn't just sit there in a vacuum, decontextualized. The gospel is good news that has a context. It has a foundation. And that foundation is the Old Testament. Now, to some of us, we might say, well, I don't particularly like that. (laughs) As the Old Testament actually... When I read it, I don't like the God that it presents. Maybe you've thought that at some point. Maybe you know someone who thinks that. I don't like that it presents this God who who seems judgmental, 
uh, who seems at times violent, who seems legalistic with all of these laws. And then when I read the Old Testament, so much of it just seems irrelevant. How on earth could this be the foundation of the gospel and the foundation of our faith? And nowhere does that seem more relevant than in a chapter like the one we've just had read out, right? Genesis chapter 38. What have you got? Violence, attempted murder, prostitution, adultery, lust. What on earth does this have to do with the gospel? And what on earth does this have to do with our lives today? Well, actually, here's the claim I'm going to make. This chapter, Genesis 38, is an absolutely key chapter for understanding the gospel. You might not get that at first, but by the time we're done today, we will get that. And in fact, uh, as has been said this morning, we're going to go through the Pentateuch. First five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And this chapter, Genesis 38, is fundamental to understanding the message of the book of Genesis. Probably, if you've read through Genesis, you've never thought that. <laughs> you just blitzed over this one and gone, I have no idea what this is all about, whatever. Actually, no. Uh, this, this chapter, I don't want to overstate it. It's not the key chapter of the book, okay? But, but this chapter actually has all of the themes of Genesis sort of converge in on it. So what we're going to do today to understand the book of Genesis, we're going to treat this chapter, Genesis 38, as kind of like the trunk of the tree, all right? And from that, we'll branch out into the rest of Genesis as a book, looking at creation, the spread of sin, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. So Genesis 38 is kind of our trunk, and then we're going to branch off into the rest of the book. That's our strategy, because otherwise we'll be here for a few hours, right? Seven, eight, nine, ten hours, and I'll just talk about Genesis. I could do that. That would be a terrible idea, especially given how long we've already been here. So, so uh, let's just do this. We'll go through Genesis 38 and branch off. Now, um, to do that well, and sorry to push the metaphor, um, but it's really worth uh, asking sort of what, what, is the, what is the garden that this tree is planted in? Okay, another way of putting that. Uh, what is the context of Genesis and of the Pentateuch? Context really matters. Uh, for example, I might say right now that it's 20 to 11. It's 20 to 11. Why am I saying that? Well, I might be saying that because my intention is just to tell you the time. Yeah, cool. It might be that my intention is like, it's already 20 to 11. I'd better speed up. It might be that my intention is, you know, Rob Wright has actually just come in super late to church and he walks through the door and I'm like, it's 20 to 11. <laughs> right? The intention matters. The context matters. We do this with language all the time. This is, this is the case with books, with text as well. The Bible is not immune to this. We need to understand the context if we're going to understand the message. And the problem is sometimes what people do is they go directly from, well, here's the words I read in the Bible and here's what it means to me. But they miss, well, what did it mean when God first spoke it in its original context? Because God never contradicts himself. And so we need to understand the context first. Very important for your Bible reading. So the context, who wrote it, when and who to? Who wrote it? Probably Moses. Probably Moses wrote the book of Genesis and most of the Pentateuch. Of course, he couldn't have written the bits that were about his death at the end of Deuteronomy. That doesn't quite work. You can't write about your own death after it's happened. And so there would have been later editors that would have come in and, and filled things out as they needed to be. Okay, So as you're reading through Genesis and the, the Pentateuch, think Moses wrote this. 
And there's good historical reasons for thinking that. I won't get into them all right now. Who was he writing to? He was writing primarily to the Israelites about to enter the promised land. So remember, they'd come out of Egypt, the first generation of Israelites, saved out of slavery in Egypt by God. And then um, they disobeyed God and were forced to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that generation died out. And then their children would enter the promised land. Moses himself would miss out. Joshua would lead them in. Why was he writing to them? Well, think about what's in the promised land, the land of Canaan. This is a land filled with people that worship other gods, right? They're not worshippers of Yahweh. They're not worshippers of the God revealed to us here in the scriptures. Uh, They worship Baal. Back in Egypt, where they come from, they worship Ra. They worship Isis. Uh, They're surrounded by people who worship foreign gods. And so the temptation lays behind and lies ahead for Israel also to worship foreign gods. And especially as they enter the promised land and they see these huge, vast armies that they're somehow going to have to conquer. And the playground rules back in these times were if our army beats your army, then our God is the true God and the strong God and your God is the weak God and the untrue God. Okay? So they look at all these big armies and they're thinking, maybe their God is the real one. Maybe we need to worship Baal. But no, we have the book of Genesis and the rest of the Pentateuch as a, as a reminder to these Israelites about to enter Canaan. You have the true God. He's with you. Trust him, follow him, worship him alone. Just as a bit of a case study of that, Genesis chapter 1. What's the reason for Genesis chapter 1 having been written? Probably wasn't to predict debates that would happen over the last 60 or 70 years about the timing of creation. That's an important thing to think about, but that's not the primary thing about chapter 1. It's not primarily about the how of creation as much as the who of creation. Who created everything? It was your God, you Israelites, about to enter the promised land. Not the God of the Canaanites, not the God of the Egyptians, not their pantheon of gods, but your God. And so don't worship Ra, the sun God. Worship the God who made the sun. Don't worship uh, Nana, the Persian moon God. Worship the God who made the moon. Don't worship Baal, the god of fertility in Canaan. Worship the god who made everything and to whom everything owes its existence, including trees and vegetation and including the water and the land and including the animals and the birds and the reptiles and including you and me. Worship that god. Trust that god, not these false gods. Do you see? This is why context matters. It helps us understand the message of this book. And so now... Come back to chapter 38. And we're going to see three big things in this chapter that then branch out into the rest of the book. I'm going to give you these three words now and I need you to remember them. Sin, grace, and plan. Sin, grace, and plan. Three big words. Now, just in case you missed it, Let's quickly summarize our way back through Genesis 38 because there's a lot happening there, isn't there? (laughs) And then we're going to see this sin, grace, and plan. So Genesis 38, here's this guy, Judah. Do you know who Judah is? 
Uh, Judah is the son of uh, Jacob. He's one of 12 sons. Um, Joseph, if you've seen Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat and all those things, uh, Joseph is another one of his brothers. So here's Judah. He's part of the, the lineage of Abraham. Judah turns up and uh, he has a son, Ur, and another son, Onan, and another son, Shelah. Now, Ur, he promises to a Canaanite woman named Tamar. And if you're an Israelite about to enter the promised land, there are already sirens going off and there are already you know, flashing red lights because, hold on, Canaanite woman, what's going on here? Already there's something wrong, isn't there? Yeah. And so um, Judah promises Ur to this Canaanite woman, Tamar. But Ur does what is wicked in the sight of the Lord. And so the Lord puts him to death. And then Onan, his second son, fulfills the duties of a brother-in-law. Now, if in the ancient world, um, your brother died and he was married and you weren't yet married, you would then have to sort of carry the offspring for him. Okay, that was just ancient practice. Um, but Onan decides not to do that. Super awkward to have read out in church. Sorry, Ezra. <laughs> Super awkward. But it, the whole point of this is, is Onan is saying, I'm not going to carry the family line forward. They're not going to be my kids. So no. And the Lord puts him to death because that too is wicked. We'll come to why that is. It's not because what you may have heard from the Catholic Church that, oh, no, no, you can't use contraception or something like that. No, there's actually a reason for this. We'll come to it. Okay. So Onan is put to death. And poor Tamar, she's here just going, well, hold on. Where am I going to get a husband? And so Judah says, well, okay, I'll promise my third son to you. He's too young at the moment, but when he's old enough, he'll be your husband. And she waits and waits and waits. And before long, Judah decides, oh, you know what? I'm just going to go and shear some sheep off with my mate. I'll just go up there for a few years and do everything I need to do up there. And Tamar's watching all this and just going, well, hold on, what about me? Shelah's old enough. Have you just forgotten? See, Judah's kind of doing the same thing as Onan is, funnily enough. He's not continuing the family line on. And so Tamar decides, well, I'm going to take this into my own hands. And she dresses up as a temple prostitute. She goes, she waits outside the temple till she can see Judah passing by. Judah calls out to her. Can I come in and, and sleep with you? And what a great guy, right? <laughs> and so she says, well, okay, if you give me, you know, something. And so he says, I'll give you a young goat. She says, well, obviously you don't have it with you. So if you give me some sort of pledge, and you see what he hands over? His staff, his signet ring. These are the ancient equivalents of like your birth certificate, your passport, your credit card, right? Identity theft, right? All of this is just going over to her. They go in, they sleep together. Tamar gets pregnant. A few months later, Judah learns that Tamar has gotten pregnant from prostitution. And did you catch what he says? Bring her out. Let's burn her. Now, oh, the irony. <laughs> and she says, oh, well, yeah, okay. Well, the guy who actually, you know, did this to me, well, he's the guy who owns this passport and this credit card. Do you read the names on those, Judah? <laughs> right? All comes back on him. But notice his response. This is a very important response. We will come back to it. Verse 26, she is more righteous than I. She's not very righteous. <laughs> yeah, she is more righteous than I since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. 
and then Tamar has twins and scene. It's, it's bizarre, right? It's strange. It's offensive. Well, let's work it through. First word, sin. Sin. It's written all over this chapter, isn't it? Prostitution, adultery, people taking advantage of each other, people not fulfilling their promises. How did it get like this? How does the world get like it is today? We see sin all around us. Why is the world so broken? Why are relationships so broken? Why do we see it here? Why do we see it in the world around us? Well, Genesis starts out in chapter 1, of course, with God creating everything. And he, at the end of each day, looks and says that it is good. And after he's made man and woman, Adam and Eve, he looks and says that it is very good. So how do we get from very good to not even good? (laughs) Awful, broken. How, How does that happen? Well, as Adam and Eve are in the garden, God says these words to them. Genesis 2, verse 16 to 17. The Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now, um, there probably aren't too many horror movie buffs in this room. Um, I am not a horror movie buff. I get far too scared and don't like the images that get in my head. Uh, but, but if you've ever watched some classic things like some Alfred Hitchcock or something like that, they're quite entertaining. Um, and there's, um, there's this sort of technique in horror movie making called the knife on the table. So this is like where you've got, if you picture the scene, there's a woman home alone. It's, it's dark on a stormy night. And she's chopping up vegetables leaves the knife on the table and walks away, but the camera stays lingering on the knife on the table. Right? It's like this ominous foreshadowing that, that something's going to happen. This verse here is a knife on the table. Don't eat of this tree. If you do, you'll die. Hold on a sec. Why are the scriptures telling us that? It's a knife on the table. It's foreshadowing that something bad is going to happen. And so then you come to the start of the next chapter, Genesis 3. This serpent turns up. And if this is the knife on the table, the serpent is the knock on the door. Okay? Things are not looking good. The serpent talks to the woman and convinces her that God is holding back. Right? The reason that he said, don't eat the fruit, is because he's keeping something from you. He doesn't want you to become powerful like him. He's the creator, he's the king, he doesn't want you to have that place. And you won't die if you eat the fruit. Notice he doesn't say, by the way, the serpent represents Satan, the enemy of God. Notice he doesn't say, oh, go and eat the fruit. He just plants seeds of doubt, doubt in God's character. Think Israelites about to enter the promised land. Okay, seeds of doubt. What happens? Adam and Eve go and eat the fruit. And do they become like God? Do they get everything they hope for? It all goes terribly. In a moment, we see everything collapse. Adam and Eve, instead of enjoying fellowship with God, go and hide from God. They hide from each other. They cover themselves up. God finds them grieving and says, what is this you've done? And then Adam blames his wife. And the wife blames the snake. And in a moment, we see how every relationship in the world has suddenly broken down. The relationship between God and people. 
Instead of enjoying fellowship, they're now ashamed and separate from him. The fellowship, the relationship between man and woman and between people and creation, all suddenly broken because people wanted to be like God in the sense of taking his place. I'm going to run life the way I want to run it. I'm going to be in charge, not God. Besides, he doesn't know what he's doing. He's holding back. I'm the one who's going to make the decisions. That's the definition of sin. Sin is, is relational and positional. It's actually to do with how we treat God. It's not just doing bad stuff, but how we respond to God as the ruler and king. And all of us have done this. We are all like Adam and Eve, if we're honest. Now, where this all leads is to something called the fall of man, where everything's broken. And we don't call it the gradual slide of man, right? Like, oh, there's kind of something bad that happens here and it gets slowly worse and worse. It just goes off a cliff. The beginning of Genesis chapter 4, what happens? Two sons of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. Cain gets jealous, kills Abel. The first murder, just straight up. By the end of the chapter, you get this guy Lamech turn up. Listen to what Lamech says. He says, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Start of the chapter, a single murder. By the end of the chapter, here's this guy who's had a guy come along and slap him. And he goes, fine, you're dead. Right? And you know what? I'm not just going to kill you. I'm going to kill 77 and not even think about it. This is where things have gone. It's not the slide of man, but the fall of man. The world is, is plunged into sinful chaos. By chapter 6, just before the flood, you get this statement. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Yeah, what a statement. Now, this is, this is one of the big points of Genesis chapter 3 to chapter 11. It's showing us the effects of sin on the world. All right? And all of us feel it today. What's wrong with us? What's wrong with the world? It's sin. It's how we've responded to God. And then if you come back to the trunk, Genesis 38, right? Judah and Tamar, how can we explain that whole situation? Sin. Sin. It's how they're responding to God. In fact, they want nothing to do with him, really. What's the solution? How can things change for Judah and for Tamar? How can things change for us today? Well, the solution is our second word. Sin, then grace. The solution is grace. And grace is God's undeserved favor. Grace is actually giving someone the opposite of what they deserve. If they've done bad, you actually treat them well. If they've been unkind, you actually treat them kindly. Uh, the answer to human sin can only come from God's grace. And there are hints of it in Genesis 38. We'll unpack those in a moment. But first, just come back. Genesis 3. As soon as Adam and Eve sin against God, and then God says, well, creation is now cursed, and says, you're going to have to leave the garden. You can't be here with me anymore. God actually shows them grace straight away. Take a look at this. This is the Genesis, end of Genesis 3, verse 20 to 21. The man, Adam, called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all 
living. It's actually a picture of hope there. It's not the mother of all who are dead, right? Which is actually what they deserve. Because remember what would happen if they ate the tree, ate the fruit of the tree? On the day you eat of it, you will surely die. That is the deserved outcome of any sin. Instant death. But God shows grace. He says, no, no. Name your wife Eve, <laughs> mother of all the living. And then the Lord made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. He actually, he actually cares for them as he sends them out of the garden. He doesn't just kick them out and say, you're on your own, do your best. He gives them clothes, sends them out, and actually he pursues them outside the garden. There's still relationship with God outside the garden. All of that is an act of grace. This is written all throughout the book. Now, one question that Genesis 4 to 11 answers is, can the solution for sin come from anywhere else? Can the solution for sin come from anywhere else? The answer is no. <laughs> can it come from maybe the next generation? Like Adam and Eve stuffed it. Maybe Cain and Abel, oh no, we've already seen that's not going to work. Right? Well, maybe if they have kids, oh no, then you end up with Lamech, right? that great guy. So, okay, it's not going to be the next generation. Could it be perhaps hitting the reset button and just starting over again? What if we take like the most righteous dude on earth and God saves him and his family and then wipes everyone else out and we start again with them? That's the flood, right? Genesis 6 to, to chapter 9. How does that go? Well, Noah, the most righteous man on earth, straight after the flood gets drunk like a bogan and then passes out naked on his bed. <laughs> Right, And then his son comes in, sees him, and brags about it. He's like, check out what I saw. And then the son gets cursed, and on it goes. Right, Nothing's changed. The problem is internal. It's a problem in the human heart. And the problem is positional and relational. It's in how we treat God. Merely hitting the reset button will not work. That's why God sent the rainbow to promise, I'm never going to do this again. It's not an effective strategy. It's not an effective solution. Maybe... The solution is in human progress. Like maybe if we all work together and get on the same page and the same team and we hear echoes of this in the world today, like what if we all just believe the same thing and think the same thing and all work together and all be pals? Well, there you get the Tower of Babel, which was a monument to human rebellion against God. It only made them worse sinners. The solution is none of these things. The solution is only God's gift of grace. And the way that he conveys this grace is in a very surprising way. In Genesis chapter 12, he chooses one man, a man named Abraham, a man who comes from a country that doesn't worship Yahweh, that doesn't worship God. But God takes him and says, if you leave your homeland and go to the place where I'll show you, then I have a promise to make you. And here's the promise from Genesis chapter 12. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God promises to bless Abraham to show him grace, to give him a gift that he doesn't deserve so that through him all families on earth, all nations on earth would get the gift that they don't deserve, this grace. This undeserved favour. And um, just some words, these are important words to grab about Genesis. This particular blessing that God gives to Abraham or promises to Abraham is land, seed or, or children, 
and relationship. Land, seed and relationship, which is, is really surprising because God says to Abraham, leave your homeland. Right? So he doesn't have any land. It's only going to come by God's grace. And his wife is barren and he's old and they have no kids. So there are, there's no seed to talk about. That's only going to come by God's grace. And he comes from a country that doesn't worship God. So this relationship he's going to have with God, again, is only going to come by grace. All of this is going to be God's gift. Now, is this because Abraham's a great guy? He's a sinner like the rest, <laughs> right? If, if you go straight after God declares this promise in Genesis 12, the end of the chapter Abraham is going into Egypt and lying about his wife being his sister because he's afraid that Pharaoh is going to kill him. Right? <laughs> and, then, and then later on, he's doing all this other awful stuff. He does the same thing again in Genesis 20. He doesn't learn, at least initially. It's not because he's a great guy. But God takes him and promises these things to him, promises relationship. And there's so much evidence of Abraham walking with God in that relationship and also promises to transform him. Because by Genesis 22, you have Abraham there with his son Isaac, willing to give up his son's life because of his faith in God. Here is a man changed. A man who, when he went into Egypt, lied so that his life wouldn't be under threat. He didn't trust God. And then by Genesis 22, he's even willing to give up his son's life. He's willing to give up everything because he knows that God is trustworthy. There's change. This is the mechanism of God's grace. It is both relational and transformative. And we see this, this pattern all the way through Genesis. You know, God takes a, just a, a bad guy and then shows grace to him, the grace of relationship and the grace of transformation. Just two really quick examples. Uh, Jacob, right? Jacob is, is just one of those guys that, that you want to punch, Right? <laughs> He's deceptive. He's a snake. You can't trust him. Uh, you remember what he does to his brother Esau? He goes and tricks his dad Isaac, who's Abraham's son, um, so that uh, Jacob can have the birthright. It's like going and, and secretly changing the will of your parents so that you get all the inheritance and, and they get nothing. Right? That's what he does to Esau. And so he runs away because understandably Esau is annoyed just a little bit. And so he runs away. And, um, and there, this deceptive guy, uh, out in the desert, he meets God. Genesis chapter 28, God reveals himself to him and actually says, hey, I'm going to be with you. And then in Genesis chapter 29 to chapter 31, what happens? Well, Jacob goes off, he meets this guy Laban, who turns out it's an even better liar than he is. <laughs> and so Jacob gets deceived himself. There's the whole thing with the sisters and 14 years of work and, and all of that. But by the end of it, I just want you to hear what Jacob says after this whole process, this whole ordeal. He goes, he's on his way to make amends with Esau, okay? Because maybe he's learned something along the way. <laughs> Listen to what he says on the way to see Esau, Genesis 35, verse 3. Let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. Through 14 long years of work, essentially slavery. Through all this time where Jacob has had to unlearn what it means to be a deceiver and begin to learn what it means to trust God. 
here by the end, he's saying, this God has been with me the whole time and has been doing good to me. Do you see the change? It's not there written out like, and Jacob changed and God was praised, but it's in the story. What about Joseph? Another guy who you want to punch when you first meet him. Okay, Here's this guy's arrogant little twerp. Right? He goes up to his brothers and he's like, God gave me a dream. And they're like, what's in the dream? And he's like, oh, in this dream, you all bowed down to me and told me how great that I was. <laughs> mm, great. You know, how would you react if you were one of his brothers? You'd be like, all right, Joseph, good, good. Let's play a game of tackle footy, right? You can be on one team and the rest of us will be on the other team. And so they decide, well, let's kill our brother. That's probably a bit too far. <laughs> let's kill our brother. One of them says, maybe we shouldn't go quite that far. They lure him out to the wilderness. And then Judah, remember this, Genesis 37, Judah. Judah says, why don't we offer him up as a slave to these pastoring merchants? Okay? Judah says, let's give him as a slave. Keep that in mind. So Joseph then goes through this whole ordeal, I won't explain the whole story, where um, he's a slave off in Egypt, but God blesses him and he becomes like the star child of the, the, prisoner, the prisoners. But then he's, oh wait, is that right? No, 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 of, of Potiphar in his house. Um, but then he's accused of something he didn't do, so he's stuck in prison. But God blesses him and he's kind of the star child of the prison. Um, but then there's this guy who says, yeah, I'm going to remember you before Pharaoh. And he's stuck in prison for another two years. His whole life just has gone on this massive detour with a lot of suffering. In, the due, in due course, God blesses him and raises him up so that he's the ruler of Egypt under Pharaoh. And then he meets his brothers. What would you do if that was you? <laughs> he takes him for a little bit of a ride, if you want to read the chapters. But, but by the end, I just want you to hear again what he says. Genesis 50 verse 20. As for you, my brothers, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Because by this whole detour, this whole ordeal that Joseph's been through, it actually worked out that Egypt was saved from famine. You know, God gave him dreams to pass the Pharaoh to interpret. And so here, Joseph's recognizing that, yes, all of this has been evil. What you've done to me, evil, horrible. But God's actually used it for good. Do you see how he's changed? He's gone from arrogant little so-and-so to, and you know, you're all going to bow down to me and say how great I am, to, you know what? You did the wrong thing to me. How great's God? Don't bow down to me. How great is God? <laughs> he has been doing good. So do you see there's this transformative grace and relational grace? In Jacob's case, in Joseph's case, they walk with the Lord through times of intense struggle and suffering. This is God's grace. It is taking sinners and inviting them into relationship and a journey of transformation that they might become the people that he has called them out to be. For the Israelites about to enter the promised land, this is extremely important because they too are sinners, just like their parents. They don't deserve relationship. They deserve to be put to death. But God offers them relationship. He welcomes them in. He gives them a plan. And there is a promise to transform them to become the people that he has called them out to be. Now come back to the trunk of the tree. 
Genesis 38, Judah and Tamar. Is there any evidence of grace in this chapter? Is there any at all? (laughs) Well, one bit of grace is to Judah. Through this whole ordeal where he's totally set in his ways against God, it seems, and against his plan to continue the family line. Remember that with Abraham, right? I'll give you a great nation. Judah essentially is blocking that. Right? Just like Onan did when he refused to, to go in and, and um, uh, bear children with Tamar. Onan's saying, oh, I'm not going to develop that plan. And so the Lord puts him to death. That's actually a right response to sinning against God. Judah's doing the same thing. And so what does he deserve? He deserves to be put to death because he's not giving his grandson away to Tamar. But God doesn't put him to death. That itself is grace. But then even more than that, God begins to transform Judah. Did you catch it? Genesis 37, he says, I'm going to send uh, Joseph into slavery. Let's do that. Let's make our brother a slave. Genesis 38, by the end of the chapter, he's saying, Oh, I repent of my sin. I know that I have not been righteous. Tamar is more righteous than me. I should have given her my, my son. And so I've got some things to repent of. She is more righteous than I am. There's just a little indication there that something is happening in his heart. And then you come to Genesis chapter 44, where Judah and his brothers appear before Joseph. They don't know yet that it's Joseph. They just think that he's the ruler. And Joseph, the ruler, is going to take Benjamin as a slave, as a servant. Listen to what Judah says. I don't have it coming up. I'll just read it for you. This is Genesis 44, verse 33. Now, therefore, please let your servant, that is me, remain instead of the boy, Benjamin, as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. He goes from the guy who was willing to sell his brother into slavery to being the guy who's willing to become a slave for his brother. God is transforming this guy. And the key is Genesis 38. There's repentance. He begins to repent of his sin and God, by his grace, begins to transform him. Incredible. This is God's grace. It is the only solution to human sin. Now, third word I gave you, sin, grace, and plan. This is a really quick point. Because all this just wraps it together, all right? To the spread of sin, God's plan is to bring a spread of grace. All right? And that comes through Abraham and his family line. I'll bless you and through you all families on earth will be blessed. But I want you just to notice one more thing about Genesis 38. How does the story end? In a coffin, says Niles. Well, it ends with, in fact, um, uh, Tamar having twins. Genesis 38. And, uh, you know, today we might go, if someone's having twins, wow, you know, you're having twins. That we might think, oh no, you're having twins, right? Because what an ordeal is ahead of you. Uh, but, But in the ancient world, if someone's having twins, it's like, that's tops. That's amazing. Because God is certainly really blessing you as evidenced by the fact that you not only have one child, but two, right? So there's evidence here of God's blessing. Even these broken sinners who are totally set against him, God is still blessing them. That's grace. Now... Tamar's kids, Perez and, what's his name? 
Zerah, thank you, Perez and Zerah, they turn up later in the Bible. They actually turn up, and I'm going I'm to read for you where this is. Um, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. This is Matthew chapter 1. These two guys appear so much later in the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. God's gracious intervention here in this moment to take this guy Judah and reorient him back on the plan and transform him and show him grace is then used to bring the children that would lead to the Messiah. Along the way is King David as well. It's just mind-blowing to see what God is doing here. Which, by the way, is why Genesis 38 appears where it does. Because Genesis 37, start of Joseph's narrative. Genesis 39, back to Joseph's narrative. And so it's like Genesis 38, oh, it's just like an ad break, right? And now back to our schedule programming. Genesis 38 is actually crucial because it interrupts the Joseph narrative. It's saying, keep your eyes on this guy, Judah, this guy who is a sinner who repents because of God's grace to him. God is going to use him, and he does. This is his plan. His plan is to bring grace through the son of the son of the son of the son of Judah, Jesus Christ, the one who would finally bring God's complete gracious response to sin by the Son of God dying on a cross, taking our sin, facing the judgment we deserve, dying in our place so that we would be made righteous, so that we could be brought to God in relationship by faith in Jesus and that he would begin by the Holy Spirit to transform us into the people that God calls us to be. And so just to finish all of this, here's the question. Do you know this God? This is the question that Moses puts to the Israelites about to enter the promised land. Do you know this God? Do you know him? Do you have a relationship with him? Do you have a relationship with this God through Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of God's gracious plan? Do you know him? Are you walking with him? Are you worshipping him alone? Is he transforming you? Let's pray. Lord, there's so much here in this book and in the Pentateuch and in your word for us to understand. Help us to go and reflect honestly. And we praise you as the God who is gracious, who is kind. The God who is just and pours out just judgment, but has been kind to us in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Band can come on up. We're going to finish with one more song. Sorry that we've gone quite a bit longer today. Uh, there is.